Karl Barth or Soren Kierkegaard said somewhere and some place that I cannot find this following image. That reading the Bible is a lot like being in the upstairs of a two-story house and you're looking out the window and down below on the ground you see people who are waving their arms frantically and they're shouting and they're very animated but you can't hear what they're saying. You know what's going on. You know something is going on. Something riveting. Something is happening. But you're sealed off upstairs. And you're looking at it and you're trying to figure out what is going on. And I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. But I feel that way when I look at this passage in Acts chapter 7 and 8. Where you have to wonder... What is going on? There's a great deal of animosity. There's a great deal of animation. There's a great deal of fantastical stuff happening. And from our distance, it's often easy to say, what on earth is everybody getting so worked up over? You've got a man called Stephen. He's one of God's A-listers. He's kind of like, you know, the Brad Pitt or the Will Smith of God's early church. He's sure to draw a crowd. He's he's full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. When he's being lambasted, he looks like an angel when they look over at him. His arguments are so profound. His prowess in preaching is so unmatched that when he's preaching about Jesus... And the Jewish leaders, the religious establishment, starts to counter him. They cannot. So they do what all people do when they can't counter an argument anymore. They start throwing rocks. They start slandering. Oh yeah? Oh yeah? Well, you're, you're dumb. That's what you do when you're put in your place. You start name-calling. And you look at this guy who's so... Amazing. One of the best guys. This is not like some C-list person who's trying to reboot their career by accepting an invitation to be on Dancing with the Stars. This is one of God's best guys in the early church. And he's preaching about the sweep of God interacting in history. And people are so torqued up about it. We're told they were furious and they were gnashing their teeth. You should picture a rabid dog (sighs) foaming at the mouth they are because he's presenting Jesus to them. He's encountering, he's opening up to them this possibility that what they've always held to be dear might be tweaked a bit. He's preached that Jesus is going to undo the temple. That God isn't going to be confined to a place That his personalized presence is going to go out to people all over the place. That the customs of Moses are going to be changed. They even stoned him, we're told. Which means they threw rocks at him until he died. That's a graphic scene. That would make for rated R if you were watching it happen. It would be hard to stomach. And when you stand back and you watch it, one thing I wonder is, and I don't know if you wonder it, why don't these guys just chillax? 
He's just talking about religion. We all know that it doesn't matter. It's not nearly as important as SEC football or the performance of the S&P 500 or whether we should attack Syria. He's talking about God stuff. Rituals and customs and ancient people like Abraham and Moses. And seriously, why are they getting so mad? And why is he realizing that they're that mad, not shutting his pie hole like any normal person would do? Why is he continuing? Why is he saying, you're so stubborn, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You're just like your daddies. And he doesn't mean it in a complimentary way. Your ears are stuffed with unbelief wax and you won't listen to God and your heart is stony and resistant. What's wrong with you people, he says. And you think, why don't you just be quiet, Stephen? Do you realize that there are obviously... Both sets of people are realizing there's something more at stake than most of us ever realize is at stake. They're talking about things that we can easily go long periods of time without even thinking about. And lots of people in our world spend almost all their time not thinking about. And here they are, either all crazy people or involved in a micro way, not in a microwave, but in a micro way was something that's happening in a macro, cosmic way all the time. And I think that's part of why it seems like they're waving their arms in such a way that we don't even understand why would they care about this so much is because what's happening there with Stephen and these leaders as they stone him is that you are seeing what happens. What's happening all the time around the world when God steps into the earth to reclaim what is rightfully his that there are many forces that do not want to cede any ground to him. And so they will fight, and they will slander, and they will cuss, and they will spit, and they'll throw rocks. They will try in any way possible to stop it. And it makes you realize, oh my goodness, when I wake up in the morning, I wake up in the middle of a great war that is happening cosmically, and it's going to be happening in my life just as it happened for Stephen and these opponents of his in the early church. You realize there is a cosmic conflict going on between two kingdoms, two imperial administrations. God saying, I want to repair the world. I want to take over enemies and make them friends. I want to undo all that is sickly, deranged, dilapidated and distorted. And Satan says, you will not. Not without a fight. And I think that's what you see going on in their lives, if you can believe it. And so here we are in a series where we're talking about the mission of God, which we believe the mission of God is that he wants to step into the world, form this community of people who give the rest of the world a taste of a different way of living of loving each other deeply, of being characterized by forgiveness, of inhaling the atmosphere of God's graciousness and then blessing the people around us in generosity and service. We believe that God is actively reclaiming the world and he enjoins us to be part of it. 
not spectators, but participants in all the things that we do. That's why we want to plant a church in Trenton. Because we want to... We want to keep taking the good news of this. This is why we support missions. That's why you go out to your job each day because you want to participate. Well, I hope it's why you do it. You want to participate in the mission of God in all the places that he's planted you. And if you're going to participate in God's mission, I think one of the things you can see about today, this today in these words, is that you should expect some things. You should expect some things, and we're going to see them here in Acts 7 and 8. Well, the first thing you should expect is you should expect some change. You should expect to encounter change. Do you know these famous last words that have been uttered in churches and all kinds of institutions? They go like this, usually by a church that's dying. We've never done it that way before. You ever heard heard that? I'm a person who hates change. People who live on the south of Lookout Mountain mostly hate change or they wouldn't live on the south of Lookout Mountain. Do you hate change? Do you want things to change? I mean, I wear the same clothes every... I went radical today and put on a blue shirt just to blow your minds. I wear the same pair of pants seven days a week and I wash them on Saturday night whether they need it or not. I don't like change. I stick. But you know what? One of the things you realize as you watch this episode with Stephen, and you realize the plot turns and such. See, Stephen is one of the seven, one of the, as I mentioned, A-listers. He's been engrafted into service as these kind of super deacons in Acts chapter 6, when there's this social need among these Widows, Stephen is one of the men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit that the apostles turned the responsibility of taking care of widows over to. He's one of the best preachers in the early church. And God gets him killed. The people are so mad at Stephen because he's presenting that Messiah has come and he's different than they imagined. He's going to be changing the customs of Moses. All the rituals and the dietary laws and the circumcision and such, it's all going to be altered. The locus of our worship is not going to be centered at the temple anymore. These are changes they did not want to happen, and they were deeply resistant to them. But here's the thing. If you're in a story that you're not author of, you must expect plot turns. And things to end in ways that you didn't count on. I was watching a movie once called No Country for Old Men. Do you know this movie? It's a Coen Brothers movie, whom I love, based on the Cormac McCarthy novel. And at the end of it, it had the most, I would say, postmodern ending, man. Because it didn't, it didn't tie up anything. It was convoluted and dissatisfying. You had Tommy Lee Jones, who, with Robert Duvall, the two most amazing men ever created, second to Jesus. I like Tommy Lee Jones. And he comes to a breakfast table, this old, gnarled, grizzled sheriff, and he's had this dream, and he shares it with his wife, and it doesn't mean anything to us, and then the movie ends. And we're sitting there in this stupor of darkness and confusion, 
And one brave soul did something I'd never heard done in a movie theater before. Articulated all the angst of everyone in the theater by shouting out with vitriol. You've got to be kidding me! (laughs) Screamed it in the movie theater, and everyone silently thought, yes, exactly. (laughs) Because I was thinking, am I just dumb? Do I not understand? Is this supposed to mean something? You've got to be kidding me. See, the Coen brothers can end the movie any way they want. We're watching it. And see, if Jesus is really the one who has these massive intentions and you're not going to be able to thwart his will, if he's the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, and his purpose is good, and his purpose is to make all things sad come untrue, and his purpose is to turn enemies into friends, orphans into sons and daughters, he's going to reclaim the earth, then you can expect in the process of redeeming things, there's going to be changes. In the process of getting people where they can hear the message, there's going to be suffering. Things change. And if you're part of God's mission, you have to realize there's going to be change. God is obviously authoring a story here. Stephen knew it, which is why he could say, Lord, receive my spirit as he's facing rabid opponents. I heard an expression this week, and I asked Michael Warren, who's a pilot, if this is right. And then I looked it up. There's a thing called pilot-induced turbulence, or pilot-induced oscillations. But turbulence might make more sense to you. And here's the idea. When you're flying in an aircraft, which I've never done, never flown one, I've been in one, there's all this turbulence around you. Well, modern airplanes are meant to withstand changes in wind patterns and such. But sometimes what will happen is when fierce turbulence comes, a pilot will create their own turbulence by overreacting to it. When they're being lifted up, they'll be pushing down too hard. Just like you overcorrecting when you're driving a car, there's so many instances where you have to realize, I have to disobey my first instinct of fear. My first instinct of pushing back against this, and let the turbulence come. Realize that it's authored. That's what Stephen did here as he's being stoned. He says, Lord Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. You can't do that unless you realize that Jesus is up to something and that he's going to handle things. And it turns out Luke realizes that he's up to something too and these changes are meaningful. On that day, the day of... Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. When we hear that, we're supposed to go, wait a second, wait a second. Didn't Jesus say back in Acts 1.8 that once you receive the Spirit, you are going to become my witnesses in not only in Jerusalem, but all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth? See, Luke sees that this change of story that no one wanted, that created mourning, godly men mourn for him. They mourn deeply for him. That this change that evil men put into a place, God was causing a plot turn, letting one of his best characters die, causing grief for people who loved him at the injustice of it. Why should this happen? And at the same time as their grief, The church spreads. 
This is a dynamic that has happened over and over again, which ought to awaken people to some of the truthfulness of Christianity. The more you try to snuff it out, the more it grows. One church father said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed, were the seeds of the church. There is no place where Christianity has been snuffed out. When it starts being persecuted, it goes like wildfire. You've got to expect these kind of changes, though. If you're going to be part of God's mission, you've got to realize there's all manner of things in your life that are not going to continue the way you want them to. But God is authoring this story. And so it's not unusual that the change would happen. Well, the other thing you've got to expect is not just change, but you've got to expect that there's going to be opposition to endure. On the very day of his death, a great persecution breaks out against the church. When Stephen is speaking, they're furious and they gnash their teeth at him and they stone him to death. When John and Peter, a few chapters earlier, have just healed a man who's been crippled his whole life, they are summoned and told to keep their traps shut about Jesus and then flogged and sent on their way. If you're going to be part of God's mission on the earth, you've got to expect that you're going to endure some kind of opposition. The early church endured all kinds of opposition. The Bible is full of these kinds of assurances. A few years ago, Kathy and the boys and I were making our way up I-59. I think we had been at the beach and we were late for something, I think. We were trying to get somewhere. I can't remember where or what. And there was a terrible traffic jam on I-59. And we knew that we were not very far from the exit that we needed to get off on so that we could make it on time. And so we did the natural thing, not having a 4 by 4 which would permit us to drive over cars. We got over into the shoulder. I say we as if we were both driving. I was driving. And I did the illegal thing. It was just a short distance. But nothing was moving. It was a parking lot. So I got over in the shoulder and I started driving. But there was this man. There was this man who had apparently, because of all the strain of daily living, had had all the charity drained from his existence. This man had a trailer. And perhaps the load of it had just emptied out his heart altogether. Because he saw me coming down that turn lane. I wasn't going to be going far. And you know what he did? He moved over and made sure his trailer was just enough in the turn lane so that the no car could pass between his trailer and the guardrail. And each time I edged up, so did he. He was intent on blocking my path. I thought to myself with not kind words, why would he do this? Why is he doing this? Well, because he had a kind of envy. If I want everybody to be just as miserable as I am. He wasn't thinking of anything other than, you're not getting ahead of me if I've got to sit here and wait, dadgummit. Everybody's got to be just as miserable. And so he made us wait. That's envy. That's what envy is. You want everybody to be just as miserable as you are. You know what happens in the Bible? These people who were the opponents of the early church, they were told, they're described as being jealous. Large numbers of people are flocking to this message And the leaders are jealous. They want everybody to be just as miserable as they are. They don't want something good to be happening to them when it's not happening 
it's happening to others when it's not happening to them. This is why in John, he says, in one of the letters, the epistles of John, he says, this is why Cain killed Abel. Because Abel's actions were righteous and Cain's were unrighteous. And so he did not think when he saw his brother's offering, wow, brother, you have just inspired me to new levels of devotion and generosity. He thought, wow, brother, I hate you. And he killed him. You ought to expect if you are going to follow Jesus, you're going to live according to his wishes, you're going to frame your life around a different set of values, there are going to be people who aren't going to applaud you for that. They're going to oppose you. They're going to get in your way. They're going to slander you. They're going to feel something well up inside them when they see the life of Jesus coming out of you, and it's not going to make them happy. It's going to make them furious. A few years ago, I heard a man who was working at a place. He was working at a place with a lot of people who were not excited to be working at that place. And this man was earnest, and he was diligent, and he was working hard. And I'm going to use a fictitious name. Nigel's going to become my fictitious name until we have a Nigel in the congregation. And the people in this business, they once said to Nigel, as they got more and more frustrated with his industry with the fact that he was so eager to do whatever needed to be done. He did things so quickly. He just seemed to be enjoying his job and wanting to do it well. And it was showing him up. And they said to him, Nigel, why have you come to destroy us? That's all they could think of. You're being too good and it's destroying us. You're showing us up. Let's all be equally bad here. The Bible insists that you've got not only that dynamic, but you've got an enemy that prowls around like a lion looking for someone to destroy. So you ought to expect some opposition. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. All the apostles say the same thing. It's through many trials that we enter the kingdom of God. But it's not just external opposition that you've got to expect. People blocking your path, people being against you, people being jealous or envious. There's going to be internal conflict. There's going to be a lot of internal conflict that happens. Because when you think about this, you've been taken up residence in by the Holy Spirit. You believe in Jesus. This is what's happened to you. This is what makes you want to do good. This is what makes you want to please God. But you also have this functional thing within you that says, I should not have conflict within myself. And so your natural tendency is going to be to veer away from the conflict. Conflict is what makes change happen. Conflict is what makes growth happen. And Christians are going to be some of the most conflicted people that there are because they have dual natures going on inside of them. I think this is one of the most sinister and confusing things happening right now sexually in our country. There are many people, there are people probably in this room right now who struggle with same-sex attraction. And it creates an enormous conflict in them. And what I've seen normally happen is eventually somebody just says, I don't want to fight anymore. And they just say, I'm going to go full bore into my, to practice my sin. How could this be normal for me to be in conflict? But see, the whole Christian life is in conflict. 
You've got this principle within you that's saying, do not obey yourself, obey your master. And you have this other principle within you that says, if you don't obey yourself, you're going to be miserable. Obey yourself always. When you start to follow Jesus, people around you are sometimes going to think, what's going on here? Why are you doing that? And you're going to start to doubt yourself sometimes. You're going to feel like a freak. You remember I've mentioned this to you before? Paul said he felt like a fool, like he'd been put on display as an apostle to be mocked and laughed at. You're going to wonder, am I crazy? Why am I doing this? Why is this so hard? It's very easy. And if you realize, as you look at Stephen here, and you realize the kind of conflict that's going on, you can start to say, you know what? This is part of the deal. And it's unavoidable. If I believe in this Savior, I'm going to have conflict in my life. And if that's the end of the story, then that's depressing. You've got to expect that there's change to encounter. You've got to expect that there's opposition to endure. And you've also got to expect God to outwit the opposition and to turn apparent defeat on its head. It's amazing to me to watch Stephen's reaction as he is on the verge of dying. What would you do if you had the righteous zeal that he had? Would you not, in a way, want to be calling down God's industrial-sized can of something? Would you not want to be calling down fireballs to destroy all these people because you knew you were right? He obviously has got some kind of insight into something, and here they are misunderstanding him so badly. And here's what he does in the middle of his suffering. He says, Jesus, this is in your hand. And he says, do not hold this sin against them. What? Proving he had been invaded by a force from outer space. The same force called Jesus who died on the cross. It sounds awful lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Don't hold this sin against them. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize the full extent of it. And see, if you're going to be a part of God's mission, what you've got to count on is that your whole life has to be a regular offering up of yourself to Jesus. You have regularly got to put God as the subject line in the middle of all the opposition and the struggle and the conflict and the change that comes your way. He's authoring the story. No matter what evil happens around you, he's up to something. Stephen knew that. He offered himself up to him. He knew he was going to have to suffer because the Savior had suffered. And as he offered himself up, the church grew. God, and he scattered them out. And they preached the word wherever they went. And they went to Samaria, even to a place where Jews did not go. And God welcomed them in and brought great joy to them. You've got to learn to introduce the subject of God into all your pain. To realize that He really is able to undo and to recast, to reshape and to release you from the kinds of things that you encounter. Gamaliel, who was a Jewish leader, urged his comrades a couple of chapters earlier. He said, you know what happens, guys? 
people come and they get a following. They say they're a Messiah. People follow them for a while. They get mowed down and everybody scatters. That happens over and over again. I urge you to keep your hands off of these people because if what they're doing is of human origin, it will fail. But if what they're doing is from God, then you won't be able to fight against it. You'll just be fighting against God. And everybody was persuaded by this. They did not say, no, that's faulty reasoning because everybody had this sense. There's no good fighting against God. Why would you fight against the God who's working good? Why would you fight against your own healing? Why would you fight against your own release? Why would you fight against the repair of the world? Well, because you're sick. But as people who have learned to trust him, you say, whatever is happening to me, God is authoring it. And he can redeem it. As Joseph said to his brothers, the evil you meant for me, God meant for good to the saving of many lives. God can flip anything on its head, any suffering on its head. And that's why over and over again, in another inexplicability about the Bible, God does this to people. Here's how he reassures them. He says, say to Moses, hey Moses, I want you to go and, uh, you know, tell the king to let all your people go. And he's freaked out. He says, but what if they don't listen to me? I don't know how to talk good. And, you know, God says, well, here, let me show you all these cool tricks you're going to be able to do. And he says, what if they still don't believe me? And God says, I will go with you. See, that's the best thing he knows how to promise. When Jesus is parting from his disciples, he says, go out into all the world. Spread the renovating mercies of God everywhere you go. And I am with you till the end of the age. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says this inconceivable thing. Don't love money. Be content with what you have. For God has said, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Now, for most of us, it is just simply not helpful if someone says, God is with you. And you're like, great, but I need some money. God is with you. Great, but I would really like a piece of cake. God is with you. Yes, but my knee hurts so bad or my heart is throbbing and the anguish in my mind is so intense. My relationships are sour. Things are horrible at the office. And they say, God is with you? Is that pious speak? Or is it something that we've not come to fully value? I think Stephen could endure a death because he was valuing that God really was with him so he could endure anything. And the thought that you have this resource of this father who has said, I am plastering my affection on you, so come what may, I'm not leaving. Is your heart crushed? I'm not leaving. Are you stuck in sin? I'm not leaving. Is your marriage hard? I'm not leaving. Are you sorrowful about changes that are happening around you? I'm not leaving. He means that to be consolation. He means his presence to be a present, to be a gift, to be a resource. I'd urge you to fight till it is. To fight to believe that that's what it's meant to be so that you can be on a mission with them in your daily life and you can endure changes and you can endure opposition because you know that he's going to outwit all opposition. He's going to turn all apparent defeat on its head. 
I close with this. There was once a story of a boy, a young man. His wife described him as a cocky young man who wooed a naive girl by telling her if she stuck with him, it would be worth it. This is one of our elders and his wife. I'm not going to mention their names, but Troy and Sarah had this... This is public. This is out on the worldwide interweb for all the world to see, I think. So I did not ask permission, but I assume it's shareable. But I love this story because I like it that Sarah characterized herself as a naive girl and Troy as a cocky young boy. And I love this pickup line, this proposal of marriage. If you stick with me, gal, it'll be worth it. Hey, I like that. I wish I had said that. But you know what? It really is the most valid question. When we look out that window as I spoke, when we look at Stephen's life, the hardest question for us is to figure out, are the things that we're called to, are they, is it really worthwhile to do them? I think we have this sense that if there were some Herculean act of sacrifice, we would know to give up our life for that. The day after Pearl Harbor... It seems like, from what I read, so many young men just knew they were going to fight for their country and they filed into recruitment offices to sign up for the military. Nobody would do that today. Nobody's sure there's anything worth fighting for. Nobody's sure there's anything worth really sacrificing for. But when you look at the story and you start to take it into yourself, you realize Stephen thought that this message of the Messiah, that he was the healing of the world. And so no matter how many people opposed him, he had to get it out there. In the early church, these people got scattered, and they didn't shut up when they were scattered. They preached the word wherever they went because they had this sense, we've got to get this message out there because this message is the only hope for people. They had this sense it was worth it. Sarah wrote this, is it worth it? I have wondered this on occasion as we have faced some hard and scary times and I have doubted, but he is faithful. And he is worth listening to when you hear his calling because you won't be able to run and hide. So these two are venturing to Uganda, fearful and sometimes faithless, but also full of faith and wonder in the one who makes it all worth it. You know what's amazing about the story of Stephen? Is that he kind of counters the Apostles' Creed. We say, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When Stephen looks into heaven, Jesus is standing. And people wonder, why is he standing? And they've speculated, and both of their speculations are worth considering and worth making all of our considerations worth it. Maybe he's standing because he's prepared to welcome this one who did not hang on to his life. And he knows I'm able to make up all of the sorrow you've known, Stephen. And he's prepared to welcome him. Well, that's certainly one biblical hope that you've got to have. You'll never sacrifice nothing. You won't stick with your husband. You won't stick to God's sexual ethic. You won't give away money. You won't take children into your home. You won't. Be honest at great personal expense to yourself and your business if you don't have some sense that God is able to make it worthwhile. And there Jesus stood as Stephen was being stoned, perhaps to welcome him. 
And the other speculation is that maybe Jesus was there doing what he said he would do. If you honor me before men, I will honor you before my Father. And maybe as Stephen was there, receiving the same faith that his Savior had, Jesus was talking to the Father. Look at him there. Look at him suffering. Look at him bearing witness to me in front of those people at great cost. Look at him and defend him. Look at him and receive him. What's magnificent about the life that has been entrusted to us is that we can endure any kind of change, any kind of opposition, because we are the recipients of God's affection. And we have Jesus standing there beside the Father, standing ready to welcome us and standing ready to defend us. And he says, it's worth it. Sacrifice for me. Risk for me. Endure change for me. Participate in my mission. Because in the end, you will see. And you've got to believe there's an end. If you think this life is all there is, you won't sacrifice anything. I don't even recommend you do. Paul says, if this life is it, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we all die. But if there is another world to come when Jesus is going to restore all things, he is able to make up to you any grief you've suffered and any loss you've endured and any conflict that you've withstood. And he'll be standing there fighting for you and then one day welcoming you with the words you've been longing to hear all your live-long life. Welcome, my son. Welcome, my daughter, into the very heart of things. Well done. Well done.